1: And uh, as we do, we come to really absolutely one of the thrilling chapters of the Old Testament. I believe that the greatest miracle, the foundational miracle of the Old Testament, really of of the whole Bible and of everything that unfolds, is the miracle of creation in Genesis chapter 1. It's the greatest display of God's power in this physical universe. And uh, I think that you you couldn't explain anything else other than the basis that is laid for us in Genesis chapter 1 and also Genesis 2. So it is the greatest display of God's power. But I believe that the exodus uh, of Israel from Egypt, and specifically the passing through the Red Sea, was the central miracle of the nation of Israel in the Old Covenant. They thought about it again and again. It really defined them as a nation. I think it probably was the most spectacular miracle uh, of the Old Testament, and maybe along with the resurrection of Lazarus and the stilling of the storm, and a few others, the most spectacular miracle of all time. The kind of thing that if you stood there, your mouth would be dropping open out of amazement. That you would never forget what God did that day. God intended to put on display his great power to save. And he wanted to do it for all time. He wanted all nations and peoples and languages all over the world throughout all generations to know what he did at the Red Sea. And so it's been written down for us in Exodus and then again and again memorialized in the Psalms and the prophets so that we would understand the greatness of his power to save. And it was meant to be understood that way. It was meant to be understood physically, yes, but primarily spiritually. That it was a spiritual thing that God was doing there, that he was giving a display, a picture of salvation from sin that day. He wanted people to know, because that is the story of all of human history. And he wanted us, when we think of two-plus million people going through a sea with a wall of water to the left and to the right, we are supposed to be amazed at God's great power. But it's not just any power. It's God's power to save sinners and bring them out of bondage into the promised land. The reason I know that is, is in Luke chapter 9. Take a minute and look there before we get into Exodus 14. Look at Luke chapter 9 and see with me again. And we've looked at this a while ago, but it's so appropriate now that we see this. This is Luke's account of what I shared briefly this morning, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, one of those great moments in Bible history. I love to, to ask people and talk. You know, when we're getting together for fellowship, let's talk about spiritual things. Let's talk about the Bible. There's so much to talk about. And so I'll ask questions like, if you could have been there at such and such a moment of Old Testament or New Testament, which one would you choose? Would it be the moment that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were in the fiery furnace or then Daniel in the lion's den or or, uh, Belshazzar's feast when the fingers appeared and the king's knees were knocking together? There's a lot from the book of Daniel. That would have been spectacular. Or or how about uh, when one angel puts 185,000 Assyrian troops to death in one night? Uh, how about that, or, or some of these other? But I think all of us would say, "I would love to see the Exodus. I would love to stand there and just watch what happened to the ocean that day, and how all the people moved through, and the pillar of, of fire that protected Egypt or Israel from Egypt while the people were passing through. I would love to see that. In the New Testament, I would love to be there on the Mount of Transfiguration to just see some of Christ's glory. If I couldn't actually be up in heaven to see His full glory, I would like to see that glimpse." that uh, Peter, John, and James had on that mountain. And here's Luke's account. What's interesting is a particular word uh, caught my attention uh, in Luke 9:28 and following. Look with me. It says, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure in the NIV. They spoke about his departure, which which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, I'm very interested in this, uh, verse 31. Moses and Elijah are there, and they are in glorious splendor. Uh, It says in Hebrews 12 that it is the place of of righteousness, souls or spirits made perfect, and so that is a kind of a visible, um, a visible representation of these righteous spirits who are made perfect. They do not, I believe, have their resurrection bodies now. That's the way I understand New Testament theology, that nobody has a resurrection body except Jesus alone. And he has had his since he was raised from the dead and everybody else is waiting until all of God's people are finished being saved and then everybody gets it at once. And that's exciting to me, I look forward to that. But here are Moses and Elijah and they are righteous men made perfect, their spirits made perfect and they're there talking with Jesus. Well, what is the topic of conversation? What are they talking about? It's very interesting. It says they spoke about his departure in the NIV which he was about to bring to fulfillment or perfect in Jerusalem. The word departure in the NIV is, literally, exodus. That's literally the Greek word. They were talking about Jesus' exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Why don't the the English translations bring that out? I looked in the KJV and it talked about his decease. That's even harder. (laughs) They talked about his decease, which he was about to bring to fulfillment is that death? I don't know what they mean by decease. I think instead we would just want to bring it over as it is. Just transliterate it and said they were talking about Jesus's exodus which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Jesus was perfecting the exodus. What do we mean by that? It wasn't, perf- it wasn't perfect yet. It was physical only in the Old Testament. There was a physical <clears throat> acting out, but the spiritual had yet to be brought to fulfillment when jesus died on the cross when he won for us salvation from sin when he paid the penalty for our sin and then made the way that the holy spirit might come and might lead us out in a way of righteousness that is the true exodus is it not and we who are christians we are on that exodus we are on 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 pilgrimage we're journeying to heaven we're on our way to the promised land And Jesus is our Moses. He's even greater than Moses. Moses, a servant in God's house, but Jesus, a son over God's house. And he is better than Moses and leading us on a better exodus. He is the perfect fulfillment of this exodus journey. And that's exciting to me. But having said all that, I still would like to have been there back then when the physical exodus took place. So look with me, if you would, at Exodus 14, at the physical exodus that Moses accomplished by the power of God. I'm going to read this whole chapter, and we'll just get as far as we can tonight with it and uh, see what the Lord does. Exodus 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around uh, the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready, and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they encamped by the sea near Pi-hahiroth, It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through the chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. When the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Now here in this chapter, we have a glorious account of God establishing a testimony for himself for all time. What does that mean he wants a witness for himself for his own glory and power that will stand the test of time daniel when he's praying in daniel chapter 9 verse 15 said now o lord our god who brought your people out of egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day we have sinned and we have done wrong now in his confession of sin he's hearkening back to this moment the moment of the exodus in which God displayed His power and it says, made a name or made a reputation for Himself that endures to this day. Well, that was in uh, about the 5th or 6th century approximately B.C. His name uh, endures to this day as we're in the 21st century and we're still glorifying God for this great miracle. And again and again in Israel's history and heritage through the Psalms, uh, the psalmist recounted this time and time again. Uh, For example, in Psalm 66, verse 5 and following, it says, Come and see what the Lord has done, how awesome his works in man's behalf. He turned the sea into dry land, and they passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. He rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise up against him. Now, that's good advice. Any God who can do this to a sea, you don't want to rebel against him. You don't want to rise up against him. And so the psalmist is just giving some free advice to the nations. Don't fight against the God of Israel, or he will destroy you just as he did to the Egyptians. Or how about Psalm 77? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You see what God is doing here is he's establishing himself a great testimony. And why? Because he he wants all peoples on earth to know and fear his name. He wants to make much of his name and his reputation. Why? Because he has some kind of an ego need to do this? Not at all. Simply because he is God and he is glorious and majestic, but also because he has ordained that sinners who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so he makes much of his name, at least in part, that sinners might call on that mighty name and be saved. Sinners like Rahab, for example who said that the whole city of Jericho was shut up within the walls of Jericho, quaking and trembling with fear because of the great God of the Israelites who destroyed Egypt at the Red Sea. That was 40-plus years later, and they still hadn't forgotten. They hadn't forgotten, and Rahab didn't forget and said, Now make a covenant with me and my family so that we will not be swept away and destroyed. And then Rahab makes it into James chapter 2 as an example of justification by faith, a faith that results in actions and a life of faith. And so Rahab is in heaven today because of the great actions of God at the Red Sea. And this is why God wants to make a mighty name for himself, that the peoples might fear him and might trust in his name. Now, as we see in this account, we find this fascinating. God has a very interesting strategy here, doesn't he? In in verses 1 through 4, he commands the Israelites where to go. He said, now I want you to go right here and just be there. With the sea at your back and perhaps the mountains around you, just hem yourself in and wait, because I'm going to do something. We see evidence, therefore, of what it says in Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments, that authoritative film. Remember what Pharaoh said. He said, the Lord may be powerful, but he's a very poor general. He's led the people where they can't go anywhere else. He's really backed them into a corner. This is really poor generalship on God's uh, part, but God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. He wanted to do this for many reasons. He wanted Pharaoh to think, oh, what a poor general is the Lord. Pharaoh had a tendency to think poorly of the Lord anyway, and so it was just in that natural same tendency again. He's going to give more evidence that God is a poor general. And so he says in verse 2, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea. They're to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Beelzevan. He's very specific about this. Very specific about where they are to be. He pins his people against the sea so that humanly speaking, there is no escape. And that's exactly what he wants to do. It's very similar to God's generalship when he tells the general Gideon, you have too many men in your army, send them home. Send them home. You have too many men in your army. I don't want them fighting for me. Send them home. And so he pairs them down and pairs them down until they finally get down to 300 men. And uh, all they bring with them are some torches and uh, clay pots and that's all. There's just nothing there and it trumpets. And, And why? Because for the same reason, I don't want you boasting that you did this by your own strength. There'll be no question about it when you realize what I do. And so God, for the very same reason that he acts in that way, is an odd general, sending most of the army home. He does the same thing here, trapping his people uh, by the sea. A.W. Pink put it this way, Israel were, was so placed that there was no human way of escape. In the mountain fortresses, they might have had a chance, but surrounded by the flat wilderness, it was useless to flee before the cavalry and chariots of Egypt. Really what's going on here? is that God is setting Pharaoh up. He's setting Pharaoh up for the final humiliation. It's amazing how God knows exactly what Pharaoh will think. He says so, remember? He says, they will think that you are wandering around in confusion in the desert and you don't know what you're doing. Look at verse 3. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering in uh, confusion hemmed in by the desert. And then he says, I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he chases you, so that he pursues you. And so I think he does hear just exactly what Jesus does when he's about to accomplish his exodus. He says in John 14:29, I have told you now before it happens. So that when it happens, you will believe that I am. And so he does the same thing here. I've told you ahead of time exactly what Pharaoh will think, and I've told you what he will do ahead of time so that when it happens, you will believe. Now, when it happened, did they believe? No, of course not, they didn't. Their hearts quaked with terror and fear. But he did tell them ahead of time what he would do. God is doing all of this for his own glory. His goal in hardening Pharaoh's heart and destroying his army is that he may be exalted, that he may be glorified, God's glory is the highest priority in the universe. The more I live, the more I read scripture, the more I realize this must be true. Nothing else is weighty enough to hold the universe together. Nothing else is massive enough to live your life for and to build your life around. Anything else is too lightweight for that. And I might say even the salvation of human souls is not significant enough to pull and hold together the whole universe. But even that comes under the heading of God's glory. God saves souls so that he may be glorified in them. And that's exactly what I believe, is what scripture teaches. So that all flesh may boast in glory in God alone. And so he is doing this for the exact same reason. So we have God's strange generalship in verses one through four. Next we have Pharaoh's strange generalship in verses five through eight. Now what is so strange about Pharaoh? Well. Let's realize everything comes in a context. There's a history here. What's been going on in Egypt up to this point? Ten plagues, the final being the devastating plague of the firstborn. God has more than amply displayed his mighty right arm to Pharaoh. I would think he would leave Egypt or Israel well enough alone. Let them go good riddance forever. We never want to see them again. Look at verses five through eight. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them. Well, isn't that amazing? They changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. Now, wasn't that always the issue? Isn't that, that why there were 10 plagues and not one or two? They always didn't want to lose the Israelite services. They always wanted to continue and to keep them. You know what they say? They say that insanity is doing the same thing again and again in the exact same way and expecting a different result. And so here is the insanity of sin. Pharaoh is going to harden his heart and bash his head against God one more time and see who's going to win. And the outcome is going to be the same as it always was before. I believe that the essence of sin is insanity. It's essentially irrational. It's insane to think you can take on God, break his commandments and not pay the price. to, To think in some way that it's going to be different for you or that it's going to be different this time. So I think frankly, even more amazing than God's strategy is Pharaoh's attitude. Remember that God had already told us what Pharaoh would think in verse three, Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. A.W. Pink puts it this way, how this brings out the hardness, the stubbornness of unbelief, how it demonstrates the folly of human reasoning, granting that Israel, that Israel were entangled in the land and shut in by the wilderness, that they were trapped by the Red Sea, did Pharaoh suppose that they would fall easy victims before his onslaught? What about Israel's God? Oh, see, that's the whole point. Pharaoh forgot about God. How could he forget about God? I don't have any idea other than that was the essence of Pharaoh's heart. I do not know the Lord and neither will I let Israel go. He said that from the start. I don't know who he is and I will not let them go. Psalm 14, verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 10, verse 4, In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. God didn't even calculate into Pharaoh's uh, decision, nor into that of his advisors. They didn't even think about God. And you know what's interesting? I was reading this afternoon in Isaiah. It says, All the nations are as dust on the scales... I thought about that before. What does that mean? That the nations are dust on the scales? What it means is they don't make an impact on the final weighing. They're they're so lightweight that they don't make an impact on the final outcome. What does make an impact? God's will alone. If God wills this, it goes this way. If God wills that, it goes that way. And all the nations are like dust on the scale and have no ultimate impact. And so Pharaoh, for all of his might, for all of his power, for all of his chariots, his select chariots, the 600 plus all the other chariots and all of, the, all of the foot soldiers, all of it was like dust on the scales before God. And so out he marches boldly. God had planned one more humiliation for the arrogant Egyptians. Realized that God had reserved Egypt's army, the best in the world, and had not touched them yet. He reserved them back for this final humiliation. They hadn't been touched by the plagues. They were ready. They were strong. They were mighty. They were ready to march, held back for this one last plague, really, one last humiliation. 600 of the best chariots went out and all the other chariots too. How many we don't know, but I do know this. It mentions in the text twice Israel's army. That's right. I said Israel's army. How many soldiers do you think it would take to take on 640,000 or 650,000 men plus women and children? You've got to have a strong army to do that. And so we're talking a huge army that went out to take on Egypt. And they had to be so massive that when the the Israelites saw them, their hearts trembled with fear and knew that they would be destroyed immediately. That's how powerful this army was. Let me tell you something. It says in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Is that not acted out here? Who was trusting in chariots that day? Who was trusting in horses? Was it not Pharaoh? We trust in the name of the Lord our God. This is important for American Christians at this time. We are, I've heard in various writings and books and articles, the lone superpower. The lone superpower. And I am interested in military technology. I. I'm still a mechanical engineer at heart. I like reading Popular Science and other things about fighter jets and drones and depleted uranium bullets and uh, reactive armor and all those exciting things. You know something, those things are dust on the scales. Absolutely dust on the scales. It doesn't matter how mighty is an aircraft carrier task force. It doesn't mighty it matter if you compare that to all of the firepower of World War II. None of that matters. What matters is what God's will is. Americans can be lured into trusting In horses and chariots and not in the name of the Lord our God our army is frankly no more impressive to God than Pharaoh's was it is nothing for God to overthrow a mighty nation like Egypt or a mighty nation like America depending on his will in the matter and so we must not as American Christians trust in military power not at all we must humble ourselves before this mighty God who's every bit as powerful today as he was back then and every bit as holy as well the simple lesson here is if God is for you Who cares who's against you? But if God is against you, who cares who's for you? All that matters is God and being with him and having him with you. And so in verse eight, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. I looked up that word boldly. It literally says they're marching out with a high hand. And I think it really ticked the Egyptians off. Who are these former slaves To march out so clearly and boldly don't they know who we are don't they know who they are i think it just was more evidence of why they just couldn't stand to let it go and they had to pursue them and so they were marching out boldly and with joy and celebration and out they went but soon they would be hunted down by this mighty army
0: thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org